Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Actor, photographer, and filmmaker John Davey has appeared in 50 episodes of Doctor Who since its revival in 2005 as a variety of monsters, including Cybermen, Daleks, Ood, and Jadoon. He's also done behind-the-camera work on a variety of projects, including quite a few music videos for Radiohead. He joins me today to talk about how he came to those roles, as well as what it's like to meet fans at a convention when you grew up as a fan yourself, how growing up with learning issues, including dyslexia, equipped him for an unconventional career, and the value of questioning your assumptions about yourself and what normal means to you. Here's my conversation with John Davey. John, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> doing all right. I'm wondering if we could start out with you telling us how you got your creative start. Were you always a creative kid or did you discover acting and filmmaking later on or was there something else that happened? Yes, so it's kind of a bit of both really. So um, professionally, i.e. getting paid for it, happened uh, a lot later. But um, I've always been interested in uh, photography, filmmaking, cinema in general uh, from a very early age. Um, I was having a good think back to try and think if there was a definitive point where it changed. But it's difficult to tell, really. Probably... Probably my love of television and cinema came from kind of escapism, really. Uh, I found my life fairly boring. <laughs> um, and, and my family is fairly boring as well. So I kind of just felt like I I didn't fit in, really. Um, they're, they're very kind of straight, academic, um, you know, uh, linear thinking people. Um, where uh, myself, um, I had and still do have um, a very, um, how, how can I put it, uh, my attention span isn't great. <laughs> uh, and, and obviously back as a kid during the day, you know, the solution for that is, well, just concentrate more. But, you know, it uh, doesn't quite work with my brain. So I, do, I didn't really ever think fit into academia um i'm very dyslexic as well which back when i was young wasn't really a thing as such um it was only until later life that i kind of really figured it out so um yeah so my my early lives were like i kind of i feel like a square peg trying to be put into a round hole um so yeah haven't exactly found out or figured out if there was a actual point but as kids you know someone will come into school saying oh my god did you watch this horror movie last night it's it's got this and that in it and as, as a kid you're, you're always looking for the the dangerous thing the naughty thing the thing you shouldn't shouldn't be doing so uh yeah my love of my love of cinema came from that uh also as well i really enjoyed watching all the behind the scenes making of um you know star wars raids the lost ark all of those sorts of things i was just absolutely fascinated by the process possibly subconsciously i 
I knew that academically I wouldn't do well. So, you know, my, uh, my love or my in as such wouldn't come from me getting good grades at school, doing higher education, doing a degree and so on and so on. Because I guess I just knew that that wasn't actually going to be the route for me. So um, as a lot of uh, dyslexic people are, uh, to my discovery, um, they're very good uh, problem solvers and lateral thinkers. So, so yeah, my entire school career was just problem solving. How am I going to navigate my way through 10, 12 years of school not being able to read or write very easily? So, uh, so in hindsight, you know, that's actually given me a load of tools to do a lot of things in my life. And generally, generally, you can't really put me in a box. I'll just, if I get interested in something, I'll just... Um, get all the knowledge that I can. YouTube now is very, uh, very useful for that. Um, and if I, if I want to do something, I'll go, right, I'll just research it and then, uh, then I'll do it. That's amazing. And especially because, you know, figuring out how to get through school in that situation, especially without anybody being able to identify, you know, oh, this is what's going on. Here's how you should handle it. I mean, to do that on your own as a kid is a gargantuan task. Yeah. I mean, it's also pretty tragic, really, when you think about it and how many other kids have been in the same position. Lots. But it's, it's impressive to have been able to do that. And I love that, you know, you're able to look at it and say, as a result... I know how to do this and this and this and, and all of these things that I might not have known how to do otherwise, which is fantastic. Yeah. So, um, strangely enough, it was probably in my twenties when I started, um, uh, meeting people and, and also my friends that are also kind of creatively minded because you, you kind of tend to bunch together in your, in your own little bubble because you're like, Oh, well, you're, into music, you're into movies, you're into all these things I'm into, uh, then it kind of transposed that the majority of them are all dyslexic as well. So I guess <laughs> there must be a pattern that that people are following um, that possibly it, it accelerates the, um, the, I'm air quoting here, creativity uh, in into the arts. So that was, yeah, that was very reassuring. You know, as a kid, you're generally... Once you found out, oh, I'm also colorblind as well. There you go. There's another one. Um, red, green, colorblind. And when that was discovered, it was basically, it was being told what you can't do. Mm -hmm. So you can't do this. You can't do that because, you know, you need your eyesight. Randomly and weirdly enough, I became a photographer and a, and a filmmaker where color can be important. Um, and um, I, and I live in a city called Bristol in the United Kingdom, which is very uh, well known for uh, its big graffiti scene, graffiti and street art scene. Um, and then, lo and behold, um, there's a huge majority of all of my graffiti artist friends that are all colorblind as well. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'll possibly have to try and get to the bottom of it a little bit more that maybe it, it actually just pushed you you know, to to prove the naysayers wrong. Oh, sorry, there's a cement lorry going by. 
It's fairly loud. Uh, uh, just for everyone listening, I'm actually uh, sat outside of my friend's apartment in Silver Lake in, uh, in Los Angeles in the glorious sunshine, um, avoiding the British weather. Um, sorry, little interlude there. So, so yeah, so the, there must be, I guess, something that just pushes you. And I'd probably think that the higher percentage of people that, and I don't want to call it a disability because it's, I always look at it more of an ability because you can then figure things out for yourself and take your own path. Um, so yeah, I don't, obviously I don't know how many super air quotes again, talented, whatever that means, people have kind of just slipped into uh, air quotes again, normal life. Um, <laughs> uh, because, you know, they were told, you know, you, you can't push forwards with this. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know. Might have to, yeah. might have to look into it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, listening um, and finding out of very famous and successful people. Um, so Henry Winkler is quite well known for being very dyslexic. Apparently Einstein was, Tom Cruise. So, so when you kind of hear these names pop up, you kind of slightly get inspired going, oh, hang on a minute. It, if they can do it, they can figure it out, then, um, you know, maybe I can. Possibly they would have had to have put a lot more work into um, their field as such. Um, I do, I do know that, um, dyslexic people who are actors, um, have to basically memorize the entire script. Um, which is a great thing for anyone directing them. That is absolutely brilliant because I've been on a lot of film sets and the amount of times that I've seen actors have to deliver a, a page and not remember their lines, you know, is, is, is kind of, page one as such for an actor you know hit your marks learn your lines that's all you need to do the rest of it's just finessing so um yeah i guess you know you just gotta put in you just gotta put in more effort than than most people i suppose yeah so were your parents worried about what you were going to end up doing once you finished school or did they just see that you were starting to find a path that looked like maybe it would be viable? Did they encourage you with that or how did that go? Um, I don't know. I don't think they really had a lot of input or a lot of, <laughs> a lot of time. They were, they were both very busy people. Um, so, you know, they were kind of, you know, tied up in their own things. Both, um, both of them were teachers and then my, my mother became a politician um, which used up hu huge amounts of her time and energy. Um, yeah, and kind of, you know, family was sort of on second on the list as opposed to trying to change the world, you know, kind of typical kind of uh, 60s and 70s sort of ethos on everything, um, which, yeah, it well in, well, in some ways that, maybe isolated myself but then it then made me seek out the things that i'm interested in so i kind of always try and take a positive spin that uh, a lot of people see what i do with my life and they go wow that's amazing i'd love to do that and i'm like well why don't you 
oh, well, I've got this and I've got that and I've got, you know, my family and I can't, I can't move away from where my parents live. So, you know, for them, yeah, that's all great. But for me, it's that kind of distance that I had at an early age has kind of given me freedom and, and choice. And choice is that, you know, one of the most important things in life. The older you get, the, the more you realize that you have less and less choice. And it's an interesting question, you know, why don't you? It is so simple and so not all at the same time. Yes. Um, yeah, I've been, thank, thank you. I just got given a cup of tea by my friend Jason. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, it's, I guess, obviously, uh, and again, I've, I listen to huge amounts of podcasts. That's why I'm more than happy to do any podcast because I kind of feel like I'm taking more than I'm giving. Cause I probably, <laughs> probably listen to about five hours worth of podcasts every day if I can. Um, and I, I kind of been going down a rabbit hole of listening to uh, uh, a lot of neuroscientists podcasts. Um, Dan Huberman is one that I've listened to recently. Who's uh, I can't remember his exact title, but he, he works out of Stanford and, I started listening to him talking about neuroplasticity and all of these things and how your personality is formed at a very early age and how your your neuron neural pathways and neural networks are developed at an early age, um, which was absolutely fascinating, you know, to listen to. So the, the idea is kind of by the age of seven, your neural pathways are kind of almost fixed. So everything in later life, this is a generalization and, and a broad brush for everyone, but everything in later life is referred back to the younger days of up to seven years old. So whatever happens kind of in your life up to seven has a massive impact on your later life, uh, be it for good and be it for bad. Um, so kind of after hearing, you know, ideas like that, I'm kind of like, yeah, this, it kind of does make a lot of sense, you know, People that I would say generally had a very uh, happy, close family upbringing, I would say, would then probably repeat that behavior later on in their life. Um, whereas, you know, generally people that have had a the opposite of that will keep on seeking out that same experience because um, it connects the neural pathways. You get dopamine and make you feel good. So... Yeah, so it's kind of very interesting, very enlightening hearing uh, things like that. So, so, and it also makes a lot of a lot more sense because a lot of times in my life, I'm like, I should be doing this. I look at everybody around me, and I was like, I should, I should be owning a house. I should have kids. I should be married. And then it's like, well, why should I? That's kind of a pattern that everybody takes, and for me personally looking at that life it, it would just not make any sense to me just in the same way that possibly my life doesn't make sense to a lot of people but yeah I find it trying to find out how the human brain works and how we actually process things is 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 extremely comforting um because sometimes you you're always second guessing yourself you know you're in your head you go in why am I thinking like this is is there something wrong with me why, why shouldn't I be thinking like everyone else? Uh, and then when you hear, you know, an expert as such talking about it, you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's okay then, you know. 
Um, so, so yeah, so, well, I, I guess I better give the listeners a, a bit of a kind of insight into my career as such to obviously uh, relate everything that I've been talking about. So, um, so I left school at the age of 16 with very few qualifications. I did really enjoy art. Um, I did get a D in art. I got marked down because uh, I was told that I was using my imagination too much. I know. Wow. You. The thing is, is at the we had O levels, which was the whatever the qualification is when you're 16 before you leave school, and, and basically you had to pick a title, a, a title subject, and then draw about that subject. So um, I picked uh, the subject of rhythm. So I drew uh, someone on a beach playing a guitar with a seagull flying overhead. Now, to me, that makes total sense. All of these things have rhythm. Uh, obviously, whoever's grading my results <laughs> thought otherwise. <laughs> oh, my. I know. Well, what can you do? It's the 1980s, and most, most you could tell most of the teachers didn't want to be there. You mm. know, possibly it was like, oh yeah, let's uh, let's teach. It'll be great. We get plenty of free time off, and then little do you realize it's it's a bit more than that. So um, so yeah, so I, I kind of left school, and then I literally just bounced from job to job to job, almost finding out what I don't want to do in life, which I think is a very important thing that people should do especially that there's a lot of pressure with young kids to go, right, you've got to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And to be fair, you've got no idea. You've got no idea until you've done something whether this is the thing for you. Um, however, I did buy uh, my first camera off of a friend of mine, Paul, Paul Blake. Um, it was a, a, a Praktika, which was an East German, I think, uh, SLR camera started taking photographs um, and we had like a, a 24 hour lab I'll take a roll of photographs and then get the results back and then I was I was just getting this amazing excitement of capturing these images and then I got 24 hours of you know anticipation and then getting the pictures back and and that obviously connected something in my brain that was just firing and it was just like yeah this is the thing that's giving me pleasure um i eventually ended up working uh in a camera store selling cameras which uh which was great um it meant that i could buy cheap cameras and learn about cameras and photography however being a being a salesman as such wasn't really my thing because i just kept on feeling disingenuous so i, I tried to uh, adapt my sales technique to not try and push someone um you know they're like oh well which one's better and most of the time i'll just say well just well they're pretty much the same just pick up what what feels right for you maybe some of my kind of ethos was coming over you know don't be told what to do you figure it out for yourself um so yeah so i, I did that for a little while then I kind of, I don't know, I, I, was, I was unemployed for about a year. I kind of went down that route of slight self-destruction. <laughs> uh, 
which which isn't a bad thing. Is you know you got you got a you got to visit places and then you come back out and it builds character. Um, I then started um, I started doing wedding photographs. Um, started earning money and I was like, oh, this is quite good. Even though photographing other people's weddings is the most uh, unfulfilling thing I could ever imagine because it's not special to me. It's right. special to someone else. Um, I also then bought a video camera and then just um, started shooting home videos, um, music videos for my friends' bands, um, this type of thing. And then I, I had a friend of mine, Sue, Sue Gent, and she was working for an animation company in Bristol where I live called Bolex Brothers. And uh, there was someone working there who was a director who then basically got a commission to make a music video and they basically wanted crew. So she said, um, she said oh, do you want to be crew on this music video, um, you know, just as a, as a runner? Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, that that would be great. Um, it then transpired that the music video was for Radiohead, um, which are a fairly well-known band, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so, yeah, so I worked on that. Um, it was a music video called There, There from Hail to the Thief album, um, all kind of weird, quirky, stop-motion animation. Um so this was back, I think, in 2003, uh, and I just bought a digital camera, my first digital camera, a Nikon D100 at the time. Um, so they were, they were shooting all the live-action stuff with Tom York, and then they were discussing how to shoot all of the stop-motion stills. Um, and at that time, the majority of it was being shot on film, or they would buy a huge broadcast camera and kind of hijack it and take the signal and capture stills on that and then i kind of my problem solver came out and i was like well can't you just capture it on a digital stills camera um and chris hopewell the director was like don't know uh figure it out and i'm like oh i'm good at this so i so i spent a couple of days kind of playing around uh trying out different techniques um uh, yeah and it and it worked and now with stop motion animation digital stills cameras is the is the norm it's the absolute go-to with that um so yeah so that was really really good and then i kind of worked with them on and off for the next eight years shooting more music videos for oh god i've got to cast my memory back uh the scissor sisters um the killers uh the bees young knives um all again weird quirky stop motion videos um, and round about that same time, I, I just bought my first property and, uh, I had a friend of mine who was my housemate, um, uh, Alan, who's, uh, like an old, old earlys, early eighties punk, punk <laughs> rocker, you know, spiky hair and everything. Um, and he, he basically was doing lots of work in film and television. Um, you know, if they need a punk uh on on a soap opera or in a movie then it's like oh well there's a ready-made punk he already looks the part so so he was saying oh you know oh why don't you just sign up with the agency that i work for just to get a bit of extra work between jobs which i did and did quite a few boring things as such um and then 
then I got an audition, not knowing what it was for, uh, and then 50 guys, all similar height and build as me, uh, turn up to the BBC studios in Cardiff uh, and spend a day with a, a lovely lady, the choreographer Elsa Burke, uh, marching around, walking around with her eyes closed, doing general kind of movement exercises. Uh, and then we were told, well, this is an audition to become the Cybermen in Doctor Who. So as a kid, grown up watching Tom Baker, um, it was like, you know, he, I got that huge adrenaline rush in my stomach going like um and then and then i kind of did the did the typical thing that all actors do is like please 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 let me get this please let me get this this will solve everything this will make my life better (laughs) um so um so yeah so i got a call back i went to uh, millennium effects um a company that makes um pretty much most of the creatures for Doctor Who as well as other things. Tried the proverbial suit on. Um, it fitted. Uh, and then did uh, four episodes in the season two with David Tennant as being a Cyberman. So, yeah, so that for me was, it was ticking a, a quite a few boxes. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm this iconic role uh, on television. And also, from my filmmaker side, it was fascinating because I'm actually on a film set and I'm just watching how everybody does their jobs. So, um, so yeah, I was kind of learning, performing, making money. It was win, win, win. Um, and then, yeah, and then lo and behold, 17 years later and 50 episodes that I've appeared in, I'm, I'm still appearing in Doctor Who. So I guess I must be doing something right. Uh, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, I've kind of, I, I, I learned the, the golden, the golden rules of, um, you know, being on a movie set is be nice, um, don't take anything personally, uh, and don't complain. <laughs> There's levels, that you know, you got top line and bottom line in the movie industry people above the top line can complain people below the bottom line generally don't um or if you do complain you do you do it very tactically um uh not sure you're you're aware of uh, louis through i am but i don't know that everybody who listens is yeah he he's a he's a filmmaker and makes quite a lot of weird quirky uh documentaries about people that have fairly odd lives he's a really really super intelligent person but his his angle is he he almost comes in slightly befuddled and and a little bit dumb um and and doesn't challenge people on their beliefs because if if you challenge anyone on a on a belief they're going to get their backs up so he kind of comes at it where he kind of poses questions to the other people for them to actually think about it so after watching him i was like you know what that's a that's a brilliant way of kind of very passively kind of getting you what you want. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so, it, you know, it's been an absolutely amazing experience um, to be involved with that show. Um, it has also taken me, you know, well, it's taken me to Los Angeles where I am now because I've just been to Gallifrey One, which is a, the world's largest Doctor Who convention. Um, 
as well as I've been to Australia and New Zealand doing uh, live shows. Uh, there was one called the Symphonic Spectacular, which was a live orchestra uh, playing the music from Doctor Who. And um, yeah, if if anyone's never heard a live orchestra playing um, scores, it's the most incredible thing ever. You never get that full feeling um, when you actually watch the program. Um, yeah, and I've been at the Royal Albert Hall uh, for the Doctor Who at the Proms. Um, and been to the States numerous times uh, visiting conventions. Um, and the, the big takeaway here for me is that you just see how much the show actually means to the fans. Um, and you kind, of, you kind of get a bit blasé when working on the show that it, it's a job, it's, it's hard, it's tough. You know, you could be doing 12, and I've sometimes done 16, 17-hour days, in a very uncomfortable costume. Um, but then when you see how much your work actually means to the fans of the show, uh, it, it just makes it all worthwhile. I can imagine that there's a real, a real split between those two things. But, you know, I, I talked to Paul McGann almost two years ago, and he said something really similar about, you know, hearing people's stories and how much, you know, he had avoided going to cons because he didn't really understand what they were about for a while. And was like, yeah, no thanks. And then when he went and heard, you know, all of these things and it just changed how he looked at everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and again, I can then, cause I, I was very similar going to conventions. Um, uh, I probably suffer from imposter syndrome, which is probably good. It means my, ego hasn't run away with me <laughs> it's kind of like why am i important why why should i be here there's famous people like paul mcgann here um so uh yeah so when i started going and then i started hearing people's connection to the television show and and what is done for them and it's escapism for them as well i kind of then went oh right this is this is me this is exactly what I was doing when I was younger and I was, I was holding on to something that I could focus on and something that gives me comfort. So, um, so yeah, as soon as I realized that very early, um, you know, I made sure that, um, every event that I go to, I try and make the, uh, the experience air quotes <laughs> of, uh, of meeting me uh, as good as possible for the fans. And hopefully I, Hope they agree. Um, I normally, if possible, do a do a presentation on stage with a load of videos and a load of photographs, all the behind the scenes stuff that I liked as a kid that I then play and then I kind of explain what happened in the scene or what things are wrong or that type of thing. So, I, um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of just I'm I'm reliving my childhood, trying to then say to people like, well this is how I got here. You know, you don't need to be this. You don't need to be that. You don't necessarily need to be able to read or write or see color properly. So hopefully um, my short givings will then make people enthusiastic to, um, to push forward with what they want to do in life instead of being told what to do. I, yeah. I, my one big thing is I hate being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, 
I know, I know myself, I need to be told what to do sometimes. Um, I'm, I'm not a conformist in any way because I, I, I tend to question authority or questioning like, well, hang on, you're getting paid to tell me what to do. So is it really in your interest or is it your, just your job and you're just trying to get what you're doing off of your table as quick as possible? Um, so, so yeah, so, you know, most, most of my musician friends and artist friends are all the same. They're just, they, none of them like being told what to do. <laughs> yeah, I think creative people in general hate being told what to do. And then where we land in trouble is then we try to tell ourselves what to do and wonder why we rebel and it doesn't yes. go well. And it's like, well, you don't want anybody else telling you what to do. So why are you surprised that it doesn't go well when you yes. try to bully yourself into doing something? Yeah. And then, and then I think we do tend to find we really get in our way. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully surrounding yourself with um, people that, that are a little bit stoic um that can understand you and then possibly then point out well there's this option this option and this option you know what's the best course of action and then it starts making you thinking and you kind of then go like oh yeah it's the problem's me <laughs> <laughs> always everyone's um, favorite conclusion <laughs> yeah and it, it is crazy because the thing is is probably probably you don't you know yourself the least compared to people that know you because you're you're internalized all of your thoughts are all internal it's all an internal monologue you're running all of these different things in your head but the people on the outside are obviously reading reading you reading your face reading how you speak and have a much better idea of um possibly what you should be doing <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so I've, I've, I've kind of been very aware and conscious of that recently. Uh, and also, you know, as most people know, the older you get, your friend circle starts growing and growing and growing, and then it almost gets unmanageable and it can, it can basically go the way that what you do is you try and spend as much possible time connecting with this enormous friend circle, you know, helping them out, but then you then forget about yourself. Um, and then you've kind of inherited friends that you may not necessarily have been chosen to be friends with, i.e. work colleagues or neighbors. So yeah, for me over the last few years, I was kind of like, well, what people are actually really important. Um, and what people actually make my lives better. Um, and on the flip side of that, how many of my friends are actually making my life worse? <laughs> and then as soon as I kind of started looking at that, I'm like, oh, right, yeah. I, I can see that my relationship with certain people doesn't, doesn't elevate either of us. Um, and then especially people that, um, you know, aren't, in the same career path or mindset as me. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been probably about three or four years I've kind of been 
slightly, not slightly, hugely adapting my life to um, to kind of make it more streamlined and, and less cluttered. Um, you know, again, coming back to the whole the whole premise of choice. You know, when you're a, a child, you've got all the choice in the world. The older you get, that choice window gets narrower and narrower and narrower. So, um, and especially for a creative person, it, it can get really frustrating. Um, especially, especially that most creative people that I know, they'll get an idea, and then literally they'll just have to just almost get up from the table and do it, and start and start that idea. Um, you know, and if you if you're married with kids, that's. <laughs> It's, it's not always that easy to uh, to navigate your way around that. Yeah, yeah, you have to learn how to kind of like take a note so you don't forget what the idea was and go juggle the things that you have to do and then come back to it. And yeah, well, yeah. F- funny you should say this. Obviously, this is a, a visual, and it, but it won't work uh, won't work too well. But I've um, but uh, I'm in dark mode on my phone. But basically. This is my notes on my phone of ideas, and it's... That is an amazingly long list. It's, well, to be honest, it's too long, because I've got the idea down, but then I've just procrastinated <laughs> on then organizing those ideas. So, <laughs> but, they're, but they're there. They're there on the, in the record as such. Yeah. So, I'm curious to know how you have this experience of of being you know in all of the behind the scenes stuff on a show like doctor who and then you go to the cons and you meet people does does that like have any kind of cross influence does having met people and hearing their stories and that kind of thing have any effect on how you approach playing a monster on that same show yes um so um fans of things well fan stands for fanatical um so and especially doctor who because he is charged yeah (laughs) (laughs) because there's so there is so many episodes so many characters so many stories um that a lot of the time you know people will be asking me questions and i'm like I've got no, I'm, I'm in that episode and I don't even remember any of what you're saying to me. Um, so understanding the, you know, the, the minutia of every little detail will be scrutinized. You know, <laughs> sci-fi fans, you know, they're good for doing that sort of thing. To be fair, I'm guilty of that with Star Wars myself. So, <laughs> um, oh, just, just as a side note, I, I met up with a friend of mine, William, who's at film school in L.A., uh, and he's he, his big thing is going to finding a location that movies were shot in, and then getting his camera and and just taking a photo exactly where it was screen matched. So the last time I was here, I kind of went to um, the location of the pawn shop in Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. uh, and the alleyway where Bruce Willis is running away, uh, Karate Kid's house. Um, 
Griffith Observatory, which is the start of Terminator, where he's looking across Los Angeles. He then took me to Death Valley and took me to all the Star Wars filming locations. Oh, wow. um, and then, like, total nerds that we are, I'm kind of in the same place that R2-D2 is or a Jawa is and all, all of that sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, focusing on... I understand focusing on detail. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm more aware that um, my performance will be rewound and forwarded, possibly frame by frame, <laughs> and analysed. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes on set, you know, we're not really given enough chance to rehearse um, because uh, anyone that's worked in television and film, it's it's a runaway train that just has to stay on the tracks. So, um, yeah, so we always take it upon ourselves to make sure that all our timing's perfect, our pacing's perfect, and, you know, how we're portrayed on screen is going to be the best. How does it work, especially, I mean, you've, you've not only been a Cyberman, but, you know, you've done Daleks and other monsters, and when, when you can't actually see your face how does that affect how you approach playing that kind of a, a monster yeah so i think thinking back initially i was really happy that you couldn't see my face um because thinking back i really didn't like having my photograph taken ironically enough <laughs> now um that's slightly changed. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's the whole actor's thing, you know, you're hide, hiding behind a mask. Um, so, it is, yeah, it is very diff different. The experience that we're experiencing on the inside is totally different from the outside. So, on the inside for us, it's very chaotic. Um, you know, we can't generally see a lot. Um, we can't breathe very well, but all you're hearing is your own breath as well in the, in the helmet. Um, and whatever movements that we sometimes feel that we're doing that feel over the top, because it's, it feels like a huge effort on the inside, isn't so on the outside. Um, so actually there's there's a funny thing so there's the character called the jadoon which are these rhino policemen and um inadvertently quite a few of us all started doing it we actually started pulling the face of a rhino <laughs> under under our costume um because it just helps helps you kind of get into the character just you know just in the same way if you're an actor if you're angry you'll pull an angry face so, yeah, tran translating the expression that will then relate to the emotion under the costume is, um, yeah, is, is a very handy tool. Obviously, a Cyberman is a little bit different because there's, there's no emotion <laughs> with them. So we're all kind of fairly blank-faced blank as such. But, uh, but yeah, yeah pull it, pulling faces behind a mask uh, does really quite help us a lot. I can imagine how that's true, even though, you know, on the surface it seems like, well, it wouldn't matter, but still you have to embody that energy. Yeah. So how else would you 
how else would you do it? You're not just going to be like, ooh, I'm angry now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but your brain and your body are connected. So, you know, if your brain, if you're tricking your brain, you know, like like what acting is, you're you're encompassing another character. So if you trick your brain enough, then your body will match what your brain thinks or thinks who you are. Yeah. And it, it doesn't look like you could possibly have very much room in a Cyberman costume. No. So the, the original ones back in series two, because um, that was back in 2004, 2005, um, they were made of fiberglass that were coated in an aluminium powder. So they look like metal. That's because the surface is metal. Um, and they were extremely heavy. I think they weighed around about 60 pounds. Um, and also we had a very tight rubber suit on underneath. So, um, yeah, it was tough, but it was, it is a, it's a kind of motto that I've, I've taken on board that the the hardest thing you've done is the hardest thing you've done. Mm. So if you if you've had no adversity at all in your life, breaking a fingernail or dropping ketchup on your shoe might be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. So so after doing those characters, everyone since I kind of went, oh well, it's not a Cyberman, so it's not going to be that difficult. <laughs> So it sounds like the the costumes have improved over the years, at least. Yeah, yeah. The the technology of costumes has advanced loads. The um, I didn't do them. The the later Cybermen from Nightmare and Silver, those uh, were and did look very similar to Iron Man's costume, but they're actually made out of the same material. Um, they were actually uh, a, a lightweight plastic and a and a, a, a a rubbery plastic uh, with special paint. Uh, and then the the latest ones that we've done recently, that was, uh, I want to say, like a spray urethane plastic, um, which, again, was, was very lightweight. Uh, those were designed by Ray Holman, the costume designer, and uh, manufactured by Rob Olsop. Um, and, they yeah, they were brilliant. And, again, the head's... Had loads of space. Go, going back to the um, the first Cybermen that we did, the heads themselves were made out of fiberglass, so they were very heavy. And we had blue lights in the mouth that lit up when we talked. Uh, and that was actually activated by a, a little switch under our chin. So when Nick Briggs, who did the voice of the Cybermen, was on set, he would read the lines in live, and we would mime like a ventriloquist dummy and and flash the blue lights which which worked but the problem is we couldn't breathe through the mouth because that was blocked up so we had to try and get air in through the eyes the later the later helmets are very similar to kind of like the sort of 70s and 80s helmets so they had way more room in in them and a a lot more uh, breathing space so yeah it's nice to nice to be considered that our breathing is important <laughs> yeah i think that cybermen would be significantly less frightening if they were passing out from oxygen deprivation so yeah, yeah. we wouldn't be uh, quite as scary i don't think no 
And, and I have to ask the obvious question, which is scarier, a Cyberman or a Dalek? Um, well, I don't know. I can't be objective because I'm inside them. Um, but it, it, it's scarier to be wearing a Cyberman costume because uh, they're tougher. A, a Dalek, you have a little seat. Well, a plank of wood that you sit on and you shuffle around like Fred, Flint, Fred Flintstone. <laughs> That's, that's the technology. Um, however, the Daleks always do tend to defeat the Cybermen. So, uh, yeah, it's a strange one because the characters of the Cybermen, they're kind of emotionless as such, Which, but then the Daleks do have emotions. So it's whether being... Yeah, I guess obviously Cybermen are, I'd say Daleks, I'm trying to make a comparison here. Uh, to, so, yeah, Dar Daleks are, are definitely psychopaths, mm -hmm. you know, because they, they are thinking through their actions, um, whereas Cybermen would, oh, I got to try and think of the personality type of, um, well, they're, they're drones, really, aren't they? They're kind of the same as the Borg. It's just a collective consciousness of, you know, we're taking over things. So, I don't know, maybe someone could come up with a good, a good analogy, a human <laughs> analogy for a personality type for, uh, for the Cybermen. Well, I'll tell you, for me, the Cybermen have always been more terrifying than the Daleks. Well, they are humanoids, so you immediately can make that connection. And also, obviously, the stories in the later episodes, they were human beings that were then, right. you know, there's a possibility that you might get captured and then all your emotions are taken away and then you exactly. become this... Exactly. <laughs> you become this drone. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, in the classic series, when you could really tell that there was a person in there, I think... I think they were actually a little bit more scary for me because of that. You know, the newer ones, you could convince yourself that it's a robot yeah. until the plot reminds you that, no, that was a person once upon a time. Yeah, the or their head. <laughs> yes, like, oh, baby, no, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. The Daleks will just kill you. The Simon yeah. will make you into one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So is there, is there anything that you, know, you wish you had known 20 years ago that you know now that everything <laughs> yeah literally everything but the, the thing is you, you're not going to know it until 20 years in the future so um but then that's what learning is about that's what life experience is about um you know being uh, you know, I think life is a, is, a, is a gradual curve and people that, and you know, you hear it that people say they peaked too early in life. You know, they get thrown into something at a very young age, but you haven't got the wisdom or the experience to navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I kind of think the, the, the big takeaway is that you, you only know what you know. So uh, at a young age, you kind of, and I'm, I'm guilty of it. As soon as, as soon as you're 
you know, adolescent age, you think you know it all. Yep. And I did. And it was like, yeah, yeah, I know this, I know that. And then when you get in the real world, you go like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, why, why is that person being disingenuous of me? Why, why have I lost money to this person? Why, why is my girlfriend finished with me? Why, you know, all these things start coming out. And it, but then that's the experience in life that that makes you human, I guess. It's true. It's very um, true. And also as well, I, I never look back because you can't change the past. So right. regret is, you know, you, you just you just let that go. There, there is a, a, another little motto I'm trying to live my life by. Um, it's always better to say, oh, well, than what if. Yeah. For sure. That, that what if. And I've still got quite a few what ifs going on at the moment. Oh, what if? What if I do this? Oh, I might fail. Okay, then I won't do it. And then that that doesn't go away. That's it, that's in your head, just nagging you all the time. And then if you do something and it doesn't work, then oh well. Right. I don't have that what if anymore. Yeah, and and along that line, I keep I keep thinking of you know your your earlier comment about the people who say, oh, I wish I could do that, and you say, well, then why don't you? And I just wonder, you know, if, and I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like that that's gone this far, but I feel like that question sets so many people up, you know, why don't you? Immediately what comes to mind is all the reasons why you can't. Yeah. Have you ever had a conversation with anyone that didn't end there where, you, where somebody was willing to think about that a little bit further? And if not, if you did have that kind of conversation, what do you think you'd tell them? Well, uh... Again, it's very difficult because you can't, um, you can't tell someone to do something or you can't tell someone that they're doing something wrong. That person has to come to the realization themselves. So um, I, I just kind of like just to throw a little seed uh, but, and not make it about them. You know, um, I just kind of, I would just say my story, which is possibly different to theirs, but if, you know, they could, you know, it's one of those things, it's like you don't say something to someone and they all of a sudden they have an epiphany and, and everything changes. Sometimes that happens, but normally it just mingles around in your brain for a while and you start thinking and then, you know, then it develops into something. So... Possibly sometimes I'm maybe a little bit facetious when I say it. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, I wish I could do what you do. And I'm like, well, what's stopping you? You know, and then that person has to then say, well, what is stopping me? And then a lot of the time they don't say anything because then they will be denying the life they are living at this moment. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think it's a kind of... Yeah, I think it's a, it's a grower in people's heads. If I'm, you know, I'm going off a bit Tony Robbins here with like <laughs> advice, but but a few things possibly that I've kind of noticed it with is that I I started building um, a camper van about a year ago, um, and I've had Volkswagens my entire life, uh, which are great because if I'm working away, then I don't have to drive and I can sleep, and uh, but I just found it not big enough um and then I, I i bit the bullet and i said 
it's better to say, oh, well, then what if? So I bought a much bigger van, um, sold my old one. I had this delivery van um, that I've then been slowly converting into a camper van uh, with the huge help of YouTube. I've probably watched hundreds of hours of various YouTube videos. And again, I've discovered what I don't want from my van. I come up with an idea. There's my younger self going, yeah, I got it all figured out. This is what I want. And as you start building it, you go, well, now that doesn't work, does it? Because X, Y, and Z. So so I've, I've literally just been putting on Instagram pictures of me building this camper van. Um, and then I've had three three other people buy exactly the same van as me and done the same. So... You know, hopefully I've in, inspired them um, because, again, this is my subconscious making all these decisions for me, like probably most of my decisions in life. If I have a van, which is basically a mobile house, I have freedom, I have choice, the, the choice that I've always been looking for. Uh, and it is amazing. It's, it is sort of 80% finished, but I have been sleeping in it, you know, um, when I was working on Doc 2, most of it's done in Wales. Um, what I would do, I'd just pull up on a beach, open the back doors, and I've got a view that no one can afford to buy in a property. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, I, and it's, yeah, amazing, so relaxing. I've got, again, this is my part of the brain that needs something different happening constantly. I can literally just go somewhere. I've got a different view out of the back of my vehicle. Um, I use it as an everyday driver as well. Um, so most of my friends that are converting their vans, they're uh, into sports, surfing, mountain biking. And it's, again, it's kind of opening up um, a lot of freedom and not keeping you fixed in one place. So hopefully I've inspired something good. We'll probably all end up like, you know, like I see in Los Angeles here where you... <laughs> get big communities of um, very tattered looking caravans and camper vans kind of lining the street however though there is a huge community of people that have full-time jobs professional jobs that now live in their vans because the rent here is astronomical so they they'll get a huge van uh, they call it stealth camping, so it won't e it won't even look like a camper van. It will even look like a delivery van. Some people actually uh, put magnetic decals of companies on the side. Oh wow! Um, they have a gym membership. Um, I've seen YouTube videos of like a nurse who does that, um, and she's like, "Yeah, why should I be spending fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars a month on rent? This is cost I'm." earning $1,500 a month more for making this choice. Right. Um, but then then the other side of me, I, I kind of look and I'm like, oh, God, am I going to be that like creepy old guy who lives in a van at the <laughs> bottom of someone's street? So, As long as it's not a van down by the river, you're yes. okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I, I always like to question myself. I kind of always like to kind of, I, I love being wrong about things. I love like having an opinion, thinking, yeah, that's that's what it is, and then someone kind of having a counter opinion, and then me re realizing like, well, your opinions are subjective. It's just 
how you interpret something. So, um, yeah, I, I embrace that quite heavily. I think your your willingness to question yourself, you know, when you were saying earlier, you know, why should I do the thing that everybody else is doing? And, and like you're talking about here is huge and something we could all stand to do a little bit more rather than just taking the default option, you know, I mean, it's it's really clever to decide you're going to live in a van and save your money if you can make it work. Yeah. You know, and that is definitely not certainly not what I was told was what my life was going to look like. You know, you're going to buy a house, you're going to do whatever. And, you know, there are alternatives everywhere if you question the status quo or what you're told should be the status quo and the willingness to do that i think is what makes a huge difference mm. also as well it's um it's finding out what you actually really need in life i haven't watched uh, the what's it is it called the minimalist on netflix as a series where um like two guys get rid of everything and only have like 12 or 17 objects or items yeah, I haven't watched life. that one. <laughs> no, but I, I need to. I need to give it a watch. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of downsizing, and again, it relates to the quote: "The things you own start owning you." Mm -hmm. So, um, and I have to say, you Americans, you like stuff. Whenever I go around to people's houses, I, I'm just gobsmacked. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's there's so much stuff. You know, there's a whole garage, and and your double garages are the size of our apartments, right? F just full of stuff, and because I'm trying to kind of downside and be a bit minimalist myself, when I visit people here, it's oh, it, get, it gets me a bit like on edge. <laughs> Can imagine. <laughs> it's kind of just, it's just yeah. It, it, well. It's probably it's probably how I work. I don't like too many distractions going on in life, and I, and I think I think most people's lives are overcomplicated anyway. But um, yeah, just having all of these things that your brain has to just keep track of all the time is yeah. Get yeah. rid of it all. You don't need it. Yeah, George Carlin's <laughs> whole thing about stuff and having to buy a bigger place to put all your stuff in didn't come out of nowhere for sure no no yeah i love i love george carlin he's <laughs> brilliant very insightful yeah but but no i think i think there's a lot of merit to that too you know paring down what you actually need yeah or as opposed to want yeah, yeah. especially if you want lots of stuff what's going on there also a good question yeah yeah it's it's filling the hole it's mm -hmm. like, and it's the same. It's the same thing. You see it with um, creative people and, and especially actors. It's if I get this role, that'll be it. That that'll be that's the thing. And then you do it, and you're like, no, that hasn't solved mm -hmm. whatever my well filling the hole. That's the that's that's the term for it. And then you you keep on going, trying to fill the hole, and you're like, hang on a minute, maybe we should reassess what's missing instead of uh, trying to get the thing that will then make it all okay yeah it's it's kind of like just flailing around trying anything rather than figuring out what is the missing yeah. thing yeah well I, i've i've kind of i've kind of cut everything down to um as you can see sitting in the sun <laughs> right? 
and especially being from Britain, um, that's probably one of the one of my top priorities in life um, because we're probably just just still in the six months of cold, wet, grey weather that we have in Britain. Um, so yeah, so if I could sit in the sun, uh, ride my electric skateboard, which that's a big thing to me, uh, travel around in my van and watch movies uh, and take photographs and make films that's that's all i need so yeah and you know obviously human contact's always nice <laughs> yeah that's always a good one <laughs> but yeah i yeah. think it's it's definitely a lot less than we tend to think that it is what we mm. actually need yeah yeah i've um well i've, I've avoided the british winter because i came over to um long island for a convention in November, I then stayed till the middle of January, and very luckily I stayed with friends. I then spent four weeks back in Britain, uh, then came to Gallifrey One, and then I'm here to the end of March, back the start of April in Britain for two weeks, and then I'm going on a Caribbean cruise, uh, the Sci-Fi Sea cruise, for two weeks. So I've there you go, my problem solving has come into its full effect and I've solved the problem of not spending winter in Britain. I was going to say, it sounds like you've been very successful in that effort. Yeah, yeah. Hack, hacking the system. You know, some, pe some people will work doing a job they hate all year round so they get two weeks doing something they like. I, I, I would love to, it to flip the other way where I can work two weeks a year and then go <laughs> off and do... Every well, I've kind of been doing that actually for about the last four months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I think it's great, though, because, you know, a lot of people and, and possibly people who are listening to this are going to think that the working at the job you hate all year is the only way to do things. And I love that you're such an example that, no, there are other ways to do things and you can shake it up and not not fall into that conventional. This is what you're told your life is going to look like kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, maybe you know, is not is not for everyone. Um, there's you know, uh, again, going back to uh, uh, Dan Huberman's, uh, I think it's called Huberman Lab, his podcast. The, there's generally certain personality types that people fit into. Uh, uh, generally, there's four. There's um, dopamine seekers, serotonin seekers. Um, then there's uh, testosterone and estrogen, which isn't is cross compatible with men, women, whichever way. So uh, basically, he was talking about compatibility with people. So serotonin seekers are generally the people that like the comfort, the you know the regular job, knowing what's going to happen in the future, and um, generally, you know if two serotonin seekers get together, it is fine. Um, I definitely think I'm a dopamine seeker because I'm constantly wanting that new experience, um, change, you know, not knowing what the futures bring in. Uh, and then obviously you have the testosterone, estrogen, alpha, you know, your traditional kind of family dynamic as well. And so it was just fascinating listening to that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely falling into that dopamine ca uh, category. Um, 
And then looking back at my previous relationships, I'm like, oh, yeah, they were definitely a serotonin category. <laughs> That's why it didn't work. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's good. It's, 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 yeah, Find, finding someone that understands you is, is kind of very important. Uh, and also you understanding that person as well and possibly not doing what I've done and probably many other people do is that you just go with someone whose brains and personality is wired in a totally different way. Yep. Love is out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Late Night Love with John Davy. <laughs> 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 well, on that note, I think that that's a great place to end. And I really appreciate you giving your time and coming and hanging out with me this afternoon. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I think you've Not given people a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, again, like I was saying, I listen to so many podcasts that I feel that, and because they're pretty much all free, um, you know, it feels like I'm, I'm, taking more than giving in life so um any opportunity to yeah do a podcast and and tell my story and hopefully people will find it interesting it is quite interesting because this is my normal so people might be listening to this and go wow that's just crazy but your normal is your normal mm -hmm. so i'm kind of like well i'm a lot of the time I'm quite flippant about it because I'm like, well, oh, this is my life. That's just right. how it is. And then other people go, oh, you know, maybe that's actually quite different, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, it's kind of nice to actually uh, realise that once in a while uh, and just be grateful of, yeah, all the crazy things I get up to. Sounds good to me. Awesome. Am I allowed to give you my social media handles? You are, but I'm also going to put them in the show notes so that everybody can find them there. Okay. Uh, it's Well, they're all the same, actually. It's at JohnDavey007, J-O-N-D-A-V-E-Y-007. Uh, and JohnDavey.com is my website. And there you go. And if you want links, they're in the show notes. <laughs> Excellent. That's our show for this week. My gratitude to John Davey for joining me and to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You know, I talk to people all the time who are feeling totally lost, overwhelmed, and stuck creatively. And I know there are lots more of you out there who are feeling the same way. So I made something to help. Check out the link in your podcast app for my creative tune-up kit. 37 bucks, super affordable, and it's full of my favorite coaching tools to help you rediscover your creative self and make progress fast. I would love to get it into your hands so that you can get unstuck and create beautiful things this year. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. <laughs>